The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way.
This morning, we are going to begin the massive and joyful undertaking of working our way through a, a new book of the Bible, the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn there into Acts chapter 1. Today, we're going to focus in on the first 11 verses. If you've been attending this church for very long, then you've probably noticed that we've been growing in number. Sunday after Sunday, the Lord brings in new faces to hear the word of God and to worship with us. And I have to say, I am incredibly thankful and blessed and in awe and stunned every time that happens because it is clear that it is God's doing. Churches get a lot of mail, right, Jim? Most of it is uh, junk mail, right, Jim? Most of it doesn't ever get opened. It just makes it from the mailbox immediately inside the door and into the garbage, uh, a lot of it's just worthless and, and completely doesn't deserve to be read by anyone. But there is a packet that has arrived at our church multiple times. And so finally, I had a few minutes and my interest was piqued. So we received this packet recently. So I, I decided to open it and glance through the contents. It's an advertisement for a group of church growth consultants. The packet was contained in it contained a little booklet. It had a, a CD in it, which I actually don't have any way to play CDs anymore. That's a new phase, uh, I guess. Uh, it had a lot of little pamphlets, and it had several pages of testimonials of churches and pastors and ministries that have grown because they've implemented the stuff that is in this little booklet. But you know what was missing from all of this material? There's a lot of stuff there. There was there's a lot of ministerial philosophy. There are lots of tips and tricks. There were even promising to send a person to your church to rearrange the stage and the classrooms and the furniture in order to make it the most aesthetically pleasing as possible for, for visitors, to make it the most attractive that you could be. But there was never a single mention of Jesus, nor was there a single reference to the Bible in all of their material that I could find. Now, we want to grow based upon what we find in this book not based on modern psychology. We want to send and support our missionaries like they, they do in this book, not what a consultant might say. We want to be a church plant and send forth new future church plants based upon the models displayed by the apostles, not the multiple, multiple different kinds of models that are being created now. Most of the time, these kinds of philosophies and models are antithetical to what we see actually being practiced in the early church. So my friend Raymond Johnson, he preached here last year on a Friday night. He has a slogan that he repeats often about their church, Christ Church in Westchester in Pennsylvania. He says, quote, we have long services, we pray long prayers, we preach long sermons, and we sing old songs. And God just keeps bringing people in. He's doing everything the exact opposite of what they are told to do in the pamphlet that I'm referring to. The book of Acts is a book that is going to challenge us, I believe, as a church and as individuals. On the corporate level, this book is going to challenge us to stop being church consumers or attenders and actually be the church. It will display for us how to think and how to act in accordance with what God's plan is for advancing his kingdom, not our plans. It's going to take us from that mode of saying, I just go to church, to I live like Christ has told the church to live. It's going to show us what it really looks like to love one another and to be devoted to one another as we really love and are devoted to Christ. It's our mission to proclaim the good news to the lost, 
It's our mission to do that right here on Long Island. That is part of our mission statement, to make Christ known here and beyond. And God has graciously gifted us with this book, which will serve for us to be a guide, to lead us in the right patterns that God has set forth for how we should live and how we should act. We cannot improve upon God's design. On a personal and individual level, I believe the book of Acts is going to show us very clearly what it looks like to take up our cross daily and to follow Jesus. He tells us to do that. Now we get to watch as those same disciples to whom he shared that information, we watch what they do as they carry out that work. It's going to display for us what it means to count the costs and to serve one another faithfully. Now, I am praying that the Holy Spirit is going to use this book to break down all forms of apathy and lethargy and consumerism and the idols of comfort and laziness that easily sneak into the hearts of people who live here. I'm asking that this book, I am praying that God would work through it to make us a unified church in the mission of spreading the gospel like the church that we find in these pages. So without further ado, let's turn our attention now to the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. This is the authoritative word of God. This is just as authoritative as if Jesus himself were here proclaiming these words to us right now. So please, in that mindset, let's turn our direction of our attention to these words. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, And the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this morning we would know your power. We would know it experientially as your Holy Spirit is taking these words from our mind and applying them to our heart. God, we pray that this would break down any areas of laziness in our spiritual walk, that this would cause us to be spiritually motivated and mobilized to go do the work that we are seeing take place in this book. God, I pray that as we begin this undertaking of going through the book of Acts, that you would use it in an amazing way to work through us, that more than ever before we would be dedicated to the task of loving you and living for you. And God, we pray that we would know more than ever your love for us and we would see that clearly. God, we pray this morning that as I preach and as many hear these words, that you would be working beyond our understanding. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. The sermon outline this morning will simply follow the seven plot points that we see taking place in the text that we read a moment ago. So here we go. Here's our seven. First, the prologue. Second, the promised spirit. Third, the perfect timing. Fourth, the powerful witnesses. Fifth, the plan of expansion. Sixth, the procession to the throne. And seventh, the prophesied return. Let's begin now with the prologue. Fifteen years ago, if you can believe it, there was a show that premiered on ABC, Lost. Anybody here ever see that show? That was like a cultural phenomenon, I feel like, at that time. It was also the first time that I had ever lived in a a home where they had cable television. And I have to say, I was hooked. I was completely hooked. One of the most interesting aspects of this show was its ability to foreshadow events that were not paid off sometimes for several seasons. And at the beginning of every episode, it would have this little prologue previously on Lost. And sometimes those prologues would show you a one or two second clip of something that happened three or four seasons before so that it would tell you this is now going to be paid off. The time for understanding this has finally arrived. The questions will finally be answered. Some of the questions were never answered, by the way, if you're interested. This is what we see taking place at the beginning of the book of Acts. This book is the second of a two-part letter written by Luke. Acts is being sent by Luke to a man named Theophilus. And just like we see at the beginning of Luke's account, he addresses it to that man. Luke is writing in the style of Greek and Roman histories. Histories like the Xenophon or Thucydides and Herodotus and Tacitus. These historical writings that we take as high literature today. High histories that we look back to. That's the exact same style in which Luke is writing. That's why his accounts are long and extremely detailed. Luke is by far the most voluminous author in the New Testament. Clocking in at over a third of the total word count of your New Testament in your Bibles. He wrote about 5,500 words more than Paul in the New Testament. So at the outset, Luke calls the reader's mind back to what has happened previously in the first book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now before we breeze past this, let's not miss the very important fact, the theological point that Luke is making in this sentence. He is from the very outset telling us, making this argument, that what we are about to read in the book of Luke is just the beginning of what Jesus came to do and to teach. That is incredible. Because if you read through the book of Luke, it is incredibly transformative. What Jesus did is amazing and incredible. And then he says, that's just the beginning. That's what he began to do and to teach. In other words, Luke is laying all of the following works that take place in the book of Acts right at the feet of Jesus and declaring, this is Christ working. This is Jesus continuing his ministry through what we see taking place in the church and by the Holy Spirit. He is fulfilling his promise to build the church. Previously in Luke, I've dealt with all these things, he says. I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What are the proofs that Luke is referring to here? 
What does it mean that he appeared to them with many proofs? Well, in Luke 24, Jesus appeared to two disciples and he walked with them. And for a time, they have no idea who Jesus is. He appeared in a room later and he spoke with the disciples and he allowed them to touch his wounds, to physically touch him. And he even ate boiled fish in front of them to show them that he was not just a disembodied spirit. He went to lengths to prove to them, I am indeed here in the flesh, resurrected in a glorified body. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, we get a summary of what Jesus told the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And later on, we read that Jesus told the ten disciples, the disciples minus Judas and Thomas, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and Moses, a law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is all of the instruction that we see Jesus giving after the resurrection in the book of Luke. But now, look at the same author, the same guy, Luke, describes and summarizes all of the post-resurrection teaching of Jesus this way. He says that Jesus was speaking to them during these appearances about what? About the kingdom of God. This going to proclaim the good news in Jerusalem and going all the way to the ends of the earth, that is a proclamation, a declaration, a command concerning the kingdom of God itself. So this prologue is designed to set the tone for us as we see what's taking place as the gospel f- spreads across the face of the earth. Which brings us now to point number two, the promised spirit. Jesus had promised in the upper room during the Last Supper that he would send the Holy Spirit. We see a lot of that in John chapter 14. But later in John 16 verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he is telling the disciples, it is literally better for you that I go to the cross and that I return to heaven because the Spirit is coming to dwell within you. In our text today, Luke gives us just a glimpse of a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples after the resurrection where he reiterated the same promises. We read in verses 4 and 5, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait For the promise of the Father, which he had said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The faith of the disciples is on clear display here. You can see their trust in Christ by remaining in the city that killed Jesus. Now they are told to wait there because the promised Spirit is going to come to them there. Jesus is foretelling something incredibly significant here. I think often because of some of the charismatic chaos that takes place in some parts of the church, 
I think oftentimes our response is to simply avoid dealing with the question of what is the Holy Spirit's coming really about. Do not mistake the importance of what is taking place here. Jesus is foretelling a turning point in human history. The disciples are just days away from the third member of the Godhead descending to indwell his people. Think about that for a moment. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. We have a holiday for that. Christmas. God becoming man and dwelling among us. But what is taking place here is God is coming to dwell within us. In a few weeks, we're going to do a deep dive on the definition and meaning that he's talking about here of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But for now, let me simply summarize it by saying that everyone who is in Christ has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, explains that this way. It says, quote, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that is the same thing as saying you have been saved. But like I said, we'll consider that more carefully a few weeks from now. The gift of the Holy Spirit is a blessing. It is a true gift that all true Christians share. Which brings us now to point number three. The perfect time. The news of the Holy Spirit certainly excited the disciples. However, their response reveals the fact that they still don't really understand the nature of the kingdom of God. So it says in verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The disciples are still looking for a kingdom that looks just kind of like a sanctified version of the Roman Empire. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their misunderstanding of substance here. Rather, he responds to them by specifically focusing on their misunderstanding of the timing of the consummation of the kingdom. Yes, the kingdom of Christ is going to advance. It is going to fill the earth. And it isn't going to look anything like they expect. But his focus here is to consider the timing. They are ready for this to happen right now. Perhaps you know somebody who was drawn in by the predictions made by Harold Camping that in May 21, 2011, that Jesus would return and judge the wicked and that the entire earth would end October 21st of that same year. Perhaps you were yourself curious or drawn in or or wanting to know or maybe even nervous that day, like, is this really going to happen? But everyone who can read their own Bible should be able to clearly see it's not our job to know when the end will come. As Jesus said in this very verse, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What we see the disciples doing for the remainder of this book is this. They make long-term plans for ministry. They make long-term undertakings for their efforts for Jesus. And they recognize some of this will not pay off for generations. And they are constantly living before the face of God and evangelizing the lost with an urgency recognizing that we might not have that many generations. It might, he might come now. So there's a balance that we see them striking for both serving the Lord for the long-term and for the immediate. Jesus never downplays his return, and I don't want to do that either. In fact, the Bible highlights the return of Christ on a myriad of occasions. However, 
the command for the believer is never to take our eyes off the work set before us. God is not going to oversleep. He's not going to hit the snooze button and then realize that he missed the return date. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Whenever he pleases, he does not sleep or slumber. He is not slow to fulfill his promises. Also, I want you to notice that there is nothing that you or I can do to expedite the process of Christ's return. Jesus refers to the date as being fixed by the Father. Christ has left us here for a time to order and accomplish the work of spreading his kingdom throughout the earth. There are people that I know who believe we should be doing either this or that in terms of evangelism and missions or sending money here or there because if we simply do that, we can speed up the return of Christ. I even know people who believe that the way to get Christ to return more quickly is through involving ourselves in politics in particular ways, by influencing governments. Let me simply tell you, that day is fixed, and God will send the Son the second time whenever he wants, just as it says in Galatians that Christ came in the fullness of time for his original incarnation. His return is going to be in the fullness of time at his second coming. He knows exactly when it is right. So that is not for us to know. It is not for us to be worried. It is not for us to guess or teach about that specific date. And it is not for us to try to influence. Rather, it is for us to be comforted by, which we will see more in a moment. Point number four, the powerful witnesses. I know probably everyone in here has seen a courtroom drama on television at some point. From a cinematic point of view, I want you to put yourself for a moment into the director's chair and ask yourself the question, if there is a witness who is an eyewitness, has eyewitness testimony, what would I try to make that actor do in order to show that they really are feeling or, uh, or really convincing you of the argument? Right? If you were in that director's chair, how would you tell them to act in order to convince the jury of guilt or innocence? What does it take for their testimony to be powerful? Does it take facts? Does it take emotions? Does it take good storytelling? Does it take personal anecdotes? Does it take tears? Does it take all of the above or even more? In real life, I am certain that the lawyer's job is in part to coach witnesses on how to sit and what to wear, and how to act in order to ensure that their testimony is going to land with as much impact as an atomic bomb. Their goal is to make that testimony explode onto the scene. So they make certain suggestions about how to garner the appropriate response that you are desirous of. There are millions of things that the disciples had going for them in terms of their ability to be powerful witnesses. They had the sob story. Think of the suffering they had experienced. They had the personal experiences of being with Jesus for three and a half years. Who knew this guy better than, than, than the three? Who knew them better than Peter and, and John and James? Nobody knew Jesus better than these men. They knew Christ. They had the experience. They had firsthand knowledge, the inside scoop. They had the emotions. We see multiple times Peter weeping because of his response to Jesus' arrest. We see the, the response of them joyful when he is returned after his death and he is now alive. They had the emotions. They had the track record. They had been with Jesus, but none of them, none of that could change anybody's opinion or their heart. 
None of these things made them capable witnesses in the kingdom of God. None of that would suffice to spread God's message across the world. Jesus told them in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The power behind their testimony comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As we heard earlier in the pastoral exhortation, it is the Spirit of God who sovereignly draws us. It is the Spirit of God who convicts us of sin. It is the Holy Spirit that regenerates us and makes us alive. It is the Spirit who takes the information of the gospel from our brain and makes it real to us in our heart. He makes it make sense. So without the Holy Spirit, the disciples are powerless. But with the Holy Spirit, they are capable of upending the entire society. Some opponents of the gospel describe Christians this way in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. It says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I remember attending a youth conference when I was probably 13 years old, 14 years old. I was just a young teenager, and and there were this this conference was all about turning the world upside down as a Christian. And I remember sermon after sermon being preached about the different ways that we could change our schools or our homes or whatever for Jesus. And we sang this worship song, worship song called History Maker, which the chorus goes like this. I'm going to be a history maker in this land. I'm going to be a speaker of truth to all mankind. I'm going to stand. I'm going to run into your arms. Now, a simple pronoun check will underscore the many theological flaws in this song. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. By the nature of saying that I am going to make history, it is declaring that it is all about you. You are the one going to accomplish the task. The apostles did great things for Christ. They did. And as we look at this book, they do amazing things for Jesus. But those those men do not do this in their own strength. They never take the credit for anything positive in this book. In fact... They did not turn the world upside down. Peter didn't do it. Paul didn't do it. Any advancement of the kingdom that took place in the entire book of Acts or anywhere beyond was only due to the work of the Holy Spirit working through them. And that should give you immense comfort. Why do I say that? Because right now we are standing at the edge of a spiritual battlefield and the world is fighting with all of their power to remain in sin and to remain in rebellion against God, and you and I are completely powerless to change one person's heart. You can't do it, and neither can I, but you and I have Christ with us. He is the one who fought the battle on our behalf, and you and I have the Spirit of God in us if you are in Christ. If you are a saved person, you have the same power that the apostles did dwelling within you to proclaim the good news and to see a response. Why? Why could they be zealous? Why could they go out there and command people to repent and believe? Because the Spirit of God changes hearts. And you and I can do the same thing because the Spirit of God is with us. So we have no need to fear. So we just sow the seed and God gives the increase. Point number five. The plan of expansion. Now, Jesus is going to push the boundaries even farther than the disciples expect. Not only is the power of their revolution from God himself, but the boundaries of the kingdom go far beyond the walls of Jerusalem. I think probably 
Peter and James and John and the other disciples would have been happy if it was just, just the old borders that David had for Israel. I think they would have been happy if that was the kingdom and everyone would see the shining beacon that they had there present in Israel. But take a look at verse 8 one more time. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The places mentioned here by Christ are not just a random collection of geographical coordinates. It isn't like Jesus just stood back and he took some darts and he threw them at a map real fast and he's like, so you're going to be my witnesses here and here and here and here. No, these, this verse is a missiological mandate for what God is about to do. Perhaps the easiest and most common way to outline the book of Acts is to simply say that chapters 1 through 12 primarily focus on the ministry of Peter, and then chapters 13 through 28 primarily focus on the ministry of Paul. And that is true, and that's a good way to divide the book. However, another and I think better way to outline it is this. Chapters 1 through 7 show the ministry of the gospel in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 show the good news spreading to the surrounding area of Judea, and Samaria, and chapters 13 through 28 chronicle the advancement of the kingdom as it goes from those places out to the world. Now, let me tell you why I prefer the second outline to the first. I prefer it because it reminds me of the fact that the commission of Christ is not complete yet. The work did not end with Paul sitting in house arrest in Acts 28. It did not end when Paul was beheaded shortly after he wrote 2 Timothy chapter 4. The incredible reality is that you and I are part of the grand call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That includes Long Island. You are currently sitting on the opposite side of the world from where Jesus said these words. This counts as the ends of the earth. He said this thinking of China, Argentina, Jamaica, Belarus, Italy, Mexico, your job, your train, your grocery store, your doctor's office, your school, your barbershop, your dinner table, your gym, your library, your block party, all of that fits snugly into the parameters of the ends of the earth. We have a calling that follows suit after the apostles and what we see taking place in the book of Acts. So as we work through this book of Acts together... One thing that should stand out to you is the fact that God uses very ordinary people to do his extraordinary work of building the kingdom. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we read, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if people recognized that about us? These guys are not special. These guys are not special, but they've been with Jesus. Paul speaks about this very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29 this way. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I've said this many times, but if I was making a dream team of all the people that I would save if I was God, I wouldn't be on it. And probably neither would you, no offense. Most of the people in this book, Paul included, 
were not attempting to do marvelous feats of historical greatness. They were simply obeying Jesus in simple and practical ways, even at great cost to their own comfort and desires. And God was working through their obedience to bring a multitude of people to himself from many tribes and tongues and nations. And now that mission mandate has been passed on to this generation of the church. May we take this commission as seriously as the people who first heard these words. Which brings us now to point number six. Perhaps one of the most overlooked parts of the ministry of Christ is his ascension. Verse 9 reads, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Luke's presentation of this material is intentionally regal, yet very straightforward. He gives very little detail as to the visuals of this event. He simply describes it with the exact same terminology that is used for his crucifixion on multiple occasions, that he was lifted up. The people of Jerusalem had lifted Jesus up. The the Jews, the Romans, they lifted him up and they put him on a cross. But when God lifted him up, he put him into Glory at his rightful place at the right hand of the Father on his throne. This is the coronation of King Jesus over his kingdom. It is not incidental that Luke, who includes almost no detail, zooms in on the fact that Jesus was enveloped in a cloud. Now, we cannot divorce what is taking place here from all of what comes before this throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was often showed in a cloud. Think about what happens when God meets with Moses on Sinai, enveloped the entire mountain in a cloud. The Israelites were led by a pillar of cloud by day. We see that Jesus was also surrounded by a cloud on the mount when he was transfigured before the disciples. This cloud is representative of the glory of the Lord. This is the moment that Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 is talking about. I think I've preached about 200-ish sermons in my life. And I think probably if you were to look at every one of them and say, what is the most common passage in the New Testament or any of the Bible that I have quoted or drawn from, it's probably Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But right there in the middle, it says this in verse 9. It says that Jesus was highly exalted by the Father. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. When did that happen? Before Philippians chapter 2. It is past tense. God has highly exalted him. Do you know what the word exalted means? It means that he has lifted him up. This word is being repeated here. God the Father has lifted him up to his rightful place as king ruling over the universe. This this moment is an incredible one for us. Years ago, I remember hearing a sermon by a friend, Don Shorey, on the ascension of Jesus Christ. And he started his sermon something like this. I couldn't find it, but he started it something like this. He says, Jesus was born. We have a holiday for that. Christmas. Jesus died. We have a holiday for that. Good Friday. Jesus was resurrected. We have a holiday for that. Of course, we have Easter. And then Jesus ascended. We should have a holiday for that. We should be celebrating that. We should be declaring to the world, Jesus is king sitting on his throne right now. It is at this moment that Jesus was taken up into glory and the ancient doors were open and the king of glory entered in. 
Which brings us now to our final point, point number seven. What about the disciples? What's going on here? We see the prophesied return. The disciples do exactly what you or I would do if this was us in the scenario. They just gawked, staring up into the sky. What just happened? Think about these guys. They have seen tons of stuff happen in their lives. They have seen dead people come back to life, including Jesus himself. And now they're just staring up into heaven saying, what just happened? But they were seemingly unaware that there were entertaining angels at that very moment. Consider what it says in verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now it's interesting here. It's clear that he's referencing angels. These are not just two men like we see men all the time. This is the same kind of way that he describes the angels outside of the tomb, dressed in all white. But notice what takes place here. It's very different than what takes place most of the time when an angel shows up. When an angel appears, people fall down on their faces, they freak out, they're terrified, and the angel's first words usually are something like this. Do not be afraid. Why do they say that? Because the people are terrified. And here they don't say that. Why not? Because I think the reason it says that they appear like men is because literally, what could compare to the glory of what they're seeing in front of them, of Jesus ascending to his throne? And so they look, they look around and there's these two angels standing there beside them and they, they tell them not to worry. These angels comfort the disciple in another way. Not by saying, don't be afraid of us, but rather they comfort them by reminding them of the promise of Christ, that he is one day going to return the same way that he has just left. In fact, this was the very declaration that caused Jesus to be condemned by the Jews. Do you remember when Jesus was at the kangaroo trial overnight in the middle of the night before uh, the scribes and the Pharisees? We read about that trial in Mark chapter 14, and it says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Notice what Jesus says. I am, but he doesn't just stop there. He continues and says, And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. The statement about his return is actually part of what resulted in his death. He, he told many times to the disciples, that he said, I'm going to return on the clouds of heaven with my holy angels. So let me close with three simple, very simple applications based upon this truth that Christ is returning. First of all, if you're not a Christian, first of all, thank you for being here. I'm really thankful that you've come today. But if you're not a Christian, this should not give you comfort. If you are not a Christian, this should be terrifying to you because what is promised is that when he returns, he is not going to be lowly like he was here the first time. He is not going to be calm and and he is not going to be just walking around sin as it takes place surrounding him. Instead, he is going to respond with judgment. And if you have to stand before him with your own record, you're going to be found guilty in the judgment. If you place your faith in Jesus, though, if you believe that his death paid for your sin, if you believe that he covered you, then your record will be wiped clean. And when he returns, you will not be seen for your own sin. You will not stand in your own guilt. Rather, you will be seen among the righteous at the return not by works of your own hands, because none of us could stand, 
but because Christ himself gives freely of his righteousness to all who believe in faith. Secondly, if you are a Christian, the reality that Christ is coming again is a precious comfort to you. It means that all the things around us that are broken, all of the sin and all of the lies and the corruption that fill the earth, all of that filth is going to be wiped away. I'm convinced if you follow current events really closely, like if if you just follow the news constantly, like you just sit there refreshing, waiting for a new news story to show up on your favorite news outlet or whatever, I'm convinced that if you do that, you are going to become sad or bitter or angry or a cynical person because the world is full of bad news. Why? Because the world is full of sin. As my friend Ed Moore often says, Understanding the nature of sin doesn't make watching the news any easier, but it certainly does explain it. But we have a great comfort in knowing that Christ has given us the Holy Spirit to remain with us until he returns, and we know that he will never leave us or forsake us, and we know that he is with us until the end of the age, and we know that he is coming again in all of his glory to make all things new. So brothers and sisters, When you are having a bad day that makes you just want to go home and curl up into the fetal position and take that entire day and crumple it up and throw it into the garbage, remember the promise. Christ is coming back. This day, this day was included in the plan of God's expanding his kingdom. This day was intentionally designed for you by God. This day of suffering, this trial, it's all part of God outworking his glory to the ends of the earth. And God is using your regular, average, everyday life to do that, to advance his kingdom. There are no mundane or worthless or inconsequential days in the life of a Christian. Every one of them matters. Every one of them is building up to the final trumpet blast. So live like that. Live in light of eternity. Live as though every moment counts. Which brings us nicely now to our final application. Simply this. Let's get to work. The disciples' response to this event should be very instructional for us. They waited 10 days, like Jesus told them to, and then when the Holy Spirit came, from that point forward, they are like buzzing to get the work done. They never slow down. They are constantly pursuing the next stage of expanding and spreading the gospel to every corner of the globe. So I want to encourage you to join me as we roll up our sleeves and love and serve Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we work through this book of Acts together, that you will help us, that you will show us your glory, that you will reveal your son to us so that we might love him more deeply. God, please help this to never be a moralistic approach, just to say, work harder. But God, I pray that we would say, we love Christ, so we desire to do his will. God, please help us to see the models and the patterns set forth for us in your word that we would live our lives as individuals and as a corporate body pursuing your desires for the church. God, I pray for every person here who is in Christ that is not currently a member of a local body. I pray that you would help them to see the value of being committed and dedicated to a local church. And God, I pray for every person here who is a member of this local body or another one, that they would serve faithfully there, that they would work for your kingdom appropriately like we see happening in this book. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is not saved, that you would please show them what it means to be part of Christ, that they would see that 
what it means to be the bride of Christ, to be the church, means that they have been redeemed and bought with a price. So God, I pray that you would cause anyone here who is currently in their sin to repent and believe, which can only be done by the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.